Welcome to Radio Tambua, an outreach of ACFA, the Africa Center for Apologetics Research. ACFA equips God's people for the defense of the faith, biblical discernment, and cult evangelism. Let's begin today's message. Christmas through the eyes of Dr. Luke. So if you have your Bible, I would like you to open uh, to the Gospel of Luke chapter 2. I'm going to read the first 20 verses. I will not be expositing all of them. We will have an overview of the chapter. But above all, we will seek to see how Dr. Luke wants us to understand Christmas and what that will mean for us for the rest of our lives. So Luke chapter 2, reading from verses 1 to verse 20. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel of the Lord said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby, who were lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. And this is the word of the Lord. We have been looking at lockdown, brothers and sisters. And if there is anything we agree on, is that lockdown has been had on each one of us, regardless of who you are or where you come from. If there was any security in our identity or in our jobs or in our families or in our backgrounds, COVID-19 pandemic has crushed all of them and has once again reminded us that it does not matter who we think we are, the ground is level, 
we are all vulnerable, life is brief, and at the end of the day, God is the hope for the world, today and forevermore. COVID has made that gospel very, very clear. As we were looking through Paul's letter to the Philippians, seeking to find ways in which we can live joyfully in spite of the lockdown around us, one of those passages we read about was what we find in Philippians chapter 2, about the God who became man. And the Apostle Paul was saying that as believers, if we are to live joyfully, we must adopt the same mind that was in Christ Jesus. That Jesus, who was God, did not consider equality with God as something to fight for. Rather, lowering himself, he came to us in the form of a man, as a bond servant, and suffered even unto death on the cross. And as we look at that experience or that wonder of God becoming man for our sake, we are not only reminded that even in the midst of lockdown there is hope, but we are all the more reminded that God has not just given us hope. God is our very hope. And if you ever wanted to know, really, the answer to suffering and, and the challenges that accompany lockdown, the answer is simple, Christmas. How do you live joyfully in lockdown? Christmas. How do you rediscover the peace that surpasses human understanding, even when all things all around you are falling apart? The answer is simple, Christmas. And in our series in the coming Sundays, we will be going to Luke's Gospel to see how Luke describes what Paul just told us in Philippians chapter 2. If God became man for our sake and for our hope, how did he do it? How did the majestic, sovereign, high and mighty God leave the glories of heaven, come live amongst us so that he might become the hope we need, especially in a lockdown like ours? Dr. Luke spares us no detail. He tells us about how God, who is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, assumed a human body without losing his divine nature. And as fully divine and fully human, he came and lived among us, God with us, Emmanuel. And because of that, Dr. Luke confidently says, now where the darkness was, light has shone. Where there was no hope, hope has come. Where there was sin, a savior is here. And Luke will tell us how God actually did become man in the story of the birth of Jesus. And will continually remind us that because of Christmas, nothing will ever be the same again. Luke does not just give us the historical details of the birth of Jesus, but he keeps reminding us that the birth of Jesus is a wonder of wonders, a miracle of miracles, an experience that must be memorable for all our lives, and one without which hope cannot actually come into the world. While he may describe historical, political, social, economic details that surrounded the birth of Jesus, he keeps pointing his finger actually into heaven and saying, see what the Lord has done. See what the Lord has done. And if you forget to see that finger as it points up to the handwork of God, to see God as the design, the beginner, the facilitator of the Christmas hope and the news, then you have missed Luke's story. 
In one way he tells it simply, naturally, historically. Yet within that historical setting, he shows us that there is a God who is in charge. And this God is bringing about Christmas for the sake of those who live in bondage, those who live in sin, those who live in hopelessness. And if hope must come, only God will bring it. You cannot think about Christmas without thinking about a wonder. If there is anything that has ever puzzled you or shocked you or amazed you, it must begin with Christmas. Why is Christmas a wonder? Christmas is a wonder for us to marvel at, especially because of how God brings it about. You notice how Luke has begun his storytelling it simply. In those days, Augustus Caesar, the emperor of the Roman Empire, decreed that there would be a census and that all people would go back to their homes to be counted. At first, when you look at this, you wonder why Luke would be telling us good news by telling us about an emperor in Rome. But when you understand the times in which Israel is living, then you see Luke's point. That at the time of Christmas, Israel as a community of God's people are living in bondage under the Roman regime. In fact, for about 400 years, Israel has been in darkness and has suffered the silence of God. Ever since the prophecy of Malachi, God had not spoken to Israel, not even through the prophets, not even through the high priests. No wonder when an angel comes to Zechariah in Luke chapter 1, Zechariah finds it difficult to identify him and to agree with the message he brings because for about 400 years, they had not heard the voice of God. God has been silent. Israel has been cast into the rest of the nations and you cannot see them and see any difference between them and the secular nations of the world. They have been led into captivity and the Roman regime with its brutality has not only exploited them and persecuted them, but to the point where they have concluded that either God is not there or if God is there, he really does not care about us anymore. It is in this uh, setting of confusion, setting of frustration, setting of hopelessness that heaven finally breaks the silence. When we think about Jesus or Christmas, we not only think about the baby born in Bethlehem, but we actually think about heaven breaking the silence. That after 400 years of silence, how does Christmas come into action? It begins with angels coming down. The angel visits the priest Zechariah in the temple and gives him a message. The angel comes to the Virgin Mary and gives him a message. The angel goes to terrified, frightened, confused Joseph and gives him a message. The angel goes to the shepherds in the fields of Bethlehem and gives him a message. You cannot think about Christmas without thinking about a heavenly angelic intervention. The fact that Christmas brings us face to face with heavenly beings itself is a wonder. Who is man that God would even want to visit him in that kind of glorious manner? Why is God not sending the prophets in the Old Testament that he always sent? Why is God not speaking to the priests in the temples and particularly in Jerusalem? Why does it take a heavenly being to come down in order for us to recognize that Christmas has come? What God is doing is that he is rubber stamping Christmas as the wonder of wonders and that when you come face to face to Christmas, you come before open heavens. 
For the first time you, you encounter angelic beings. You encounter God who is breaking the silence after 400 years. And the angelic message is saying, God has finally come and nothing will ever be the same again. Christmas is not just the birth of a baby in a manger. Christmas is an encounter with the sovereign, glorious, mighty God and nobody meets him and remains the same. If you look at all these angelic encounters, wherever the angel went to proclaim the message, the first thing you hear as a response from the recipients was, and they were terrified. And they were terrified. Terrified for starters because of the glory that, that accompanies the visitation. Terrified because of the unusual scenery that God who has been not speaking for 400 years all of a sudden has come and of all people he speaks to me. Terrified that they cannot believe that the God of heaven, sovereign in power and mighty would come to lowly and simple men like them. Zechariah is not only terrified, but he wonders whether this can be true. And by the time the conversation is over, he is dumb until the birth of John the Baptist. Mary is very terrified, and she cannot understand what is going on. And what does she do? She falls at the feet of the angel and says, I am the maid servant of the Lord. May it be as you have said to me. Joseph encounters a dream, and what is the response? One of terror and fear. The shepherds in the field encounter that uh, the angel. And what is their response of terror and fear? Why? They are in the face of the unusual. The unexpected. The undeserved. And that's what Christmas is about. That it's a wonder. And one way of entering into the Christmas story, into the understanding of the birth of Jesus and who he is, is that you must enter it with your mouth open in wonder. Wow. What? Oh my goodness. But why? Wow. Even me? Wow. If you do not find yourself wowing as you walk through the Christmas story, there is a problem. Chances are you have not understood the story. Christmas begins with a sense of wonder. Wonder that a sovereign God has finally broken his experience, a silence to speak to undeserving sinners. But the second wonder is the wonder of what I call the wonder of the unexpected. That when God finally comes down, it is no longer business as usual. And the first thing that he does is to break down the crumb work and the monotony of life. That almost everything that anybody would have expected about the Messiah is the reverse. Something they did not expect, something they did not plan for. Look at the times in which Jesus is born. First and foremost, in a state of hopelessness and confusion, when people have lost hope and they are just living, eating and drinking, waiting for death to take them. A condition of real darkness and hopelessness. A state where the yearning of the Jews for the Messiah that had been prophesied has reached breaking limit and the Jews are beginning to wonder, shall anything good ever come out of us? Could it be that the prophets of long ago were false after all? They lied to us. We've been waiting year after year. Isaiah had spoken 700 years had gone by. Jeremiah had spoken about 500 something years had gone by. Who will wait for a promise for hundreds of years? They had a state of giving up. 
Some have taken matters in their own hands. They have formed some rebel groups to fight against the Roman regime. Others are in a state of resignation. And just when nobody expects any intervention, when nobody even cries out for any intervention except really a few handfuls, God breaks the silence, heaven opens, and the Savior is born. Look at the man that he uses to bring about the circumstances of the birth of Jesus. Of all people that God could have worked through, he moves the heart of a Roman emperor. One who was not only secular, but defiant against the God of heaven. In fact, the reason he is called Augustus Caesar, Augustus was a title, it was not his real name. It was a title of sacredness, of, of, of reverence. And at the time of this Roman regime, Caesar was like the political savior of the world. He expected absolute worship from anybody that lived under his empire. And of all people, God chooses the man that is the greatest opponent of the gospel message. And he's the man he works through to bring Joseph and Mary where they need to be. Augustus Caesar of all people, who has proclaimed himself a competitor with God, is the one who is declaring the census. And in this we learn that when it comes to God coming to the aid of his people, God will break every boundary. He will work through both the good and the bad and the ugly to bring about his purposes. When the Christmas story opens up, we have a wicked emperor, a defiant emperor, and he is the one who sets into motion the circumstances of the coming of the Savior. He decrees the census. He has no idea why he is sending people back to their hometowns to register. Probably his intention is to collect some taxes from all those that are registered, which is why he must know everybody who is in empire. But without knowing God's purposes and plans, God is actually using his decree to send Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem, where it had been prophesied by the prophet Micah that the birth of Jesus would take place. Micah chapter 5 verse 2. It had been prophesied some hundreds of years before. That in Bethlehem of Judah, a savior would be born. The emperor Augustus does not know that. He has no idea about the Old Testament prophecies. But just at the time when he thinks he's exercising his power, he has no idea that God is working through his pride and arrogance to bring prophecies to fulfillment. That Joseph and Mary who were living in Nazareth must be in Bethlehem at the very exact time when Jesus is going to be born, so that God's word, prophesied hundreds of years, must come to pass. That in Bethlehem of Judea, a savior must be born. If Augustus Caesar had not made the decree, what would have happened? Jesus would have been born in, Bethlehem, in Nazareth, and then God's prophecy would have not come to pass, and then that would bring into question God's faithfulness. But no, God will not let it be. He will honor his word. He will move the wicked to bring about his purposes. And if there is anything that should cause us to wonder, is that when it comes to Christmas, even wicked kings bow to the sovereign. That when you think about Christmas, you think about the sovereign God who brings down everybody to their knees in honor of who he is. That the salvation of God's people happens against the background of the judgment of the wicked. That God will step over the wicked to provide a path for those that he has called to be his very own. And in their arrogance and pride, they will bring about the Savior who saves the world.
If that is not a wonder, I don't know what you call it. If God can use Augustus Caesar, the political savior of the day, of the greatest empire ever, is there anything that is hard for the Lord to use to save you? You can take comfort in that. That if God has said he will save you, or he will provide for you, nothing will stand as an obstacle before the Lord. When his time has come, even if it means using your very enemies, he's going to use them to bring about his purposes. I'm reminded of a story of a certain woman who was very poor, but a Christian. So she was been praying that God would provide for her. And somehow the news got around that this lady was in desperate need of help. So a certain rich man who was very arrogant bought some foodstuffs and packed them nicely and he gave them to his, one of his servants and he said, take to that poor old Christian woman. But when you reach there before you give them to her, tell her that Satan has sent you these provisions. So the servant takes these packages, gives them to the old lady. And when the lady receives the packages, she kneels down and says, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Now this man who brought the things is confused. Did you hear what I said? I said Satan is the one who has provided these things. And the old woman said, I don't care whether it is Satan who brings them or it is an angel who brings them. What matters is that when God has said yes, nobody can say no, including Satan. And this woman understood very well what it means for God to be sovereign. That when God chooses to stand on your side, even the devil himself will come and bring the very things you needed, even much more than he had taken away. And that is the wonder of Christmas. That you see all forces, whether political or economical or historical, coming to work together for the intended purpose of God to come to fruition. That through the decree of a wicked king, prophecy is fulfilled. Mary and Joseph are exactly at the right place where the Messiah will be born. And that night when the labor pains come, there is no room anywhere in all the guest houses of Bethlehem. Of all nights. Why? Was it an accident? No. Was it because really, really there was nowhere they could squeeze themselves? I don't think so. But again, this is God working out all circumstances to bring his word to come to pass. That the Messiah would not only be born in Bethlehem, an insignificant, obscure town in Judea at that time, but he would be born in the lowliest of circumstances ever. Not because he could not afford a five-star hotel. But because he is coming to identify with the lowly, the broken, the poor, and the confused, and therefore he must be born in the very situations in which God's people are, that he may identify with them and therefore serve them. Remember Philippians chapter 2? Paul is not only saying that God became man, but he is saying he was humiliated to the lowest of points. Of all the professions or jobs that Jesus could have taken, he became a bond servant. He suffered even up to death on Calvary's cross. Jesus being born in a manger was not an accident. It was not a lack of money to pay in one of the better guest houses in Bethlehem. It was not an accident that there was no room for them. 
But he must come in the most of miserable circumstances to identify with the miserable of God's people that he may redeem them from their misery and their captivity, both spiritual and political, to become the sons of God. Again, God orchestrating events in his sovereignty to bring about the child, Jesus Christ. The wonder of Christmas. But that is not all. God is not only working to bring them to the place, but it might also be important for you to look at the kind of people he has come for. In Luke chapter 2, we read about the visit of the angel to the shepherds who were living in the fields outside of Bethlehem. Now, you read this story and you begin to wonder, what is Luke really trying to do? The Son of God, as you are telling us, heralded by angels, as you are saying, moved to Bethlehem by the most powerful of men in the world, Emperor Augustus Caesar, now is born in a manger, and the first people to hear about the news are the shepherds in the fields of Bethlehem. Come on, look, what are you exactly trying to do? You mean there were no other people that the angel could have told? Why is it that Jesus is not born in the palace, in one of those big palaces of one of the Roman generals? After all, he is coming to be a leader, he is coming to be a savior, he is coming to be king. Shouldn't he be born in the palace? No, the palace is not even aware of what is going on. Well, knowing that Jesus was the son of God, he is coming to deliver God's people, especially from their spiritual bondage. Why was he not born at the temple in Jerusalem? Truly that would have been wonderful. To see the Pharisees and the Sadducees all bowing down before the baby Jesus and saying, Hallelujah, finally prophecy has come to pass. No. Jerusalem life is going on, business as usual. In fact, not only are they unaware of what God is doing, but even when they are told about what God has done, they don't care. In Matthew chapter 2, King Herod hears about the story. Some time after Jesus has been born, probably close to two years, he calls the religious leaders to explain exactly how the prophecies said about the exact birthplace of Jesus. These leaders come to Herod and he asks them, what did the old prophets say that, uh, where Jesus, that Jesus would be born? And these guys are like, you mean King Herod, you don't know? We shall tell you. We have read the Old Testament very well. The Savior was prophesied to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. Very right. Exact to the point. They clearly know the teachings of scripture. And after that we are told by Matthew that and they went away. What? They just had King Herod tell them that finally the long awaited for Messiah has come. Born exactly where their prophets have prophesied he would be born. And what did they do? They went back home. Business as usual. The Messiah you've been waiting for for hundreds of years, hundreds of years. You have had his final here, and all you can do is recount what the prophet said and go back home. Not even one of them bothered to look around and see whether it was true. Not even one of them went to look for this baby and give him the worship that he deserves. Clearly there is something that Luke is trying to tell us here. 
That Jesus was not born in the palace. That Jesus was not born in the temple. That Jesus was not visited by the religious and political leaders of the day. No. When he gets his first visit, it comes from poor, ordinary, dirty, untrusted shepherds in the fields of Bethlehem. When he gets foreign international visitors, they are the Magi who are Gentiles. They are not even Jewish by birth. They are not even Christians. They are worshippers of heavenly bodies, the stars. The astrologers, what you would call magicians, are the very people that come to look for the child that was born to be king. They are the ones that worship him. The wonder of the unexpected. Christmas disorganizes and destroys your crumb work. Everything you think you know about God, it's like Luke is saying, forget what you thought you knew. If you are going to come to Jesus and relate to him in the terms that are appropriate, you must empty yourself of crumb work and come at his feet to learn afresh. That when God breaks through, he breaks your biases, he breaks your crumb work, he breaks your personal experiences that are corrupted, and he says, come see Jesus for who he is, not who for who you think he is. Every one of us has a version of what we think Jesus is. During this Christmas, you will see people celebrating all kinds of versions of Jesus, and one of the things you will sadly see lacking is the biblical Jesus. That people will be relating with the Jesus in the manger who has remained a baby. That people will be relating with the Jesus who provides the commercial Jesus. Lots of shopping sprees and materialism and prosperity gospel and name it all. But one of the things you may not see is people who are opening their scriptures to have an encounter with the real Jesus that has been revealed to us. And Luke is saying, Christmas is a wonder of the unexpected. It defies your thinking. It defies your imagination. It introduces God and introduces him on his own terms, the way God wants him to be. Of course, he must come to the shepherds. There is no better place that Jesus would have, been, would have come. There are no better people that Jesus would have been revealed to apart from the shepherds. After all, when he grows up and begins his ministry, how is he going to identify himself? As the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of men. As the sacrificial perfect Lamb of God on whose account men will be exonerated from their sins. Is it a surprise that he identifies with the shepherds who take care of the lambs? They understand him better because they are taking care of lambs. These lambs that have been sacrificed day in, day out for thousands of years, when Jesus is revealed to the shepherds, it's like Jesus has saying, is saying, enough of the bloody sacrifices in the temple. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who is not sacrificed year in and year out, but when he pays the price, he pays it once for all, and nothing will ever be the same again. These shepherds who are taking care of the sheep and the lambs that we are being prepared for the sacrifices of the temple in Jerusalem are receiving a message. The lamb has come. And no more sacrifice of those fattened sheep that you are taking care of. But we must also come to the shepherds. Because remember that Jesus is not just the savior of the world. 
But in the Gospel of John, he identifies himself as the good shepherd. He compares himself with the shepherds of the world, the hired ones who take care of the sheep out of necessity or obligation, who take care of the sheep because they have been paid, who are not willing to risk when the wolf comes, they run away. And Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. I lead them out and they follow me. And on the, on the basis of the fact that God is identifying himself as the shepherd of his people, the shepherd of Israel, it is not a surprise that he must be known by the shepherds first and foremost. Because after all, that is his office. That is his role. That against the corrupt and evil leaders, both political and spiritual, that had led Israel up until this time into despair and hopelessness, the good shepherd was finally coming on the scene. He was finally going to shepherd God's people into hope, into light, into peace, into joy, and finally into eternal life. No wonder the good shepherd is born among shepherds. The first people to receive the message is that the good shepherd has come and now everybody must bow his knee because from now on the good shepherd will lead them. But we must also remember that this shepherd being the category of people that were despised in Israel, people that had no address, no identity, no technology by the civilized society of the day, that Jesus must identify with them because in his ministry and service as a savior, he has come for the poor, for the rejects, for the weak, for the unknown. And those people are the very ones that capture the heart of God. Later, the apostle Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, that for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. He identifies with the lowly and the poor that in their poverty he may lift them up and may give them the glorious riches of God's kingdom. We must also remember that God has always chosen the weak and the foolish things of the world to confound the wisdom of the wise. The apostle Paul says so. And he says that God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that which are mighty. That no wonder when Jesus comes, he doesn't go to the political elite. He doesn't go to the clerics in Jerusalem in the temple. No, he identifies with the shepherds that are living in fields far away from the civilized society. And the men who are not expecting anything, the men who do not deserve anything good, the men who have been told all their lives that they are failures and nothing good can come out of them, all of a sudden are the very people that not only have an encounter with Jesus, but did you know that the first gospel message was actually pronounced and proclaimed by the shepherds? The men who were not believed even in a court of law were the very men who first brought the gospel of hope to the world around them. Dr. Luke told us that when they went there and they beheld Jesus, they marveled and wondered at the great things that God had done and they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. Chapter 2 verse 17. That the first message about the Savior who has been born, apart from the angelic messages, actually comes from the despised shepherds of Bethlehem. 
They are the ones who are saying, He's here. He has finally come. Whoever you are, whatever you are doing, stop. He's here. We saw him. He was wrapped up in a manger, in swaddling clothes. There is no doubt whatsoever that he has come. And nothing will ever be the same again. One commentator has said, that the reason Dr. Luke takes time to describe even the kind of clothes that the baby was wrapped in. It's not just he's telling us that the baby had to be wrapped up even though it was customary and cultural. But what Dr. Luke is saying, that the Savior who has been born, has been born for death. Because in the culture of the day, dead bodies were wrapped in clothes just like baby Jesus was wrapped. And so even in his birth, there is already a shadow of Calvary upon the baby. It is already clear in the prophetic messages that the Savior has been born. But that is not enough. The Savior has been born to die. The Savior has been born to suffer. God has become man to suffer. So that those who are suffering might receive peace and joy that only God can offer. That even in that manger... The shadow of Calvary is already evident. When the shepherds proclaim that the baby Jesus has been born, they are not only proclaiming the birth, they are also saying, proclaiming his death. The one who is wrapped in clothes like those of dead bodies, we found him in a manger, in Bethlehem, isolated, far away from society. And just like this baby is born in isolation, far away from the recognition of society, so will he die out of Jerusalem on Calvary's cross away from the civilized society in, in, in judgment and curse that God brought upon him because of the sin of the world. Just as he is born in isolation, so will he die in isolation so that those who were isolated by their sin may be reconciled back to God. The wonder of wonders. See, Christmas is not just the birth of a savior. Christmas is, yes, is the birth of a Savior, but a Savior who is headed to Calvary. And this is what the Gospel writers basically paint. They don't just tell us about the Christmas story, but they tell us the Christmas story in preparation for the Easter experience. Because until we see Easter, the Christmas story is not good news. If the Savior does not die for those who have sinned so that they are reconciled to God, they cannot find good news. What makes it good news is not the entrance of the baby. What eventually climaxes as good news is the exit of the man Jesus, who on Calvary's cross will pay for the sins of all, that all those who were formerly the rejects of God might become reconciled sons and daughters of God. And that, my friends, is not only the message of Christmas, it is the wonder of wonders. We are told that those who received the message of the Christmas story were lost in wonder. People like Mary weighed the matter very carefully. They kept pondering on what this would mean for the rest of the world. And we are told that Mary treasured all these things in her hearts. Some of them came and worshipped. If you look in the Gospel of Matthew, you see the Magi do that. Fall before the baby. Worship him and give him their gifts. And then we have the shepherds who not only come and bow down in worship, but go down and witness about the birth of this baby. 
That everybody must have a response towards the Christmas amazement. That no one can just come into an encounter with Christmas and walk away and continue business as usual. The angels come in praising and rejoicing. The shepherds go in and worship and go out and become evangelists. Joseph receives the message and obeys it. Mary receives the message and bows out down in submission. I am the Lord's maid. May it be to me as you have said. What is your response to the wonder of Christmas? When you hear these amazing things, the great work of a sovereign God for undeserving sinners, what is it that is moving in your heart? Is it the sense of awe and reverence that you want to bow your knee in worship? Is it the sense of joy that you want to burst in praise like the host of angels did when they sang saying glory to God in the highest and peace upon men on whom God has had favor? What is it that you feel moving in your heart? Is it a sense of obedience like Joseph did even when he didn't understand exactly what God was doing? Even when he was going to be shamed publicly for marrying a pregnant young lady? Joseph, against everything that society would have advised him to do, obeyed God even when he knew it would cost him his reputation. Mary didn't understand it either. How does a young and married woman become pregnant without a man and give birth? And what does that mean for her testimony and reputation in society? She could have objected. She could have said, Angel, please come again next week and explain to my parents, I don't want to get in trouble because of you. But that's not what she does. She surrenders. I am the Lord's made servant. It doesn't mean I understand what God is doing. But because he is God, may his will in my life be done. How do you respond to the story of Christmas? It's not about whether you fully understand it or not. None of these characters in the story really understood it. Not even the disciples who were part of the ministry of Jesus. Some of them were saying, ah, long after his resurrection. But it didn't stop them from following. Many times we have all sorts of excuses as to why we cannot follow Jesus and bow our knee to him. You see this story, I don't understand it. You see some people are even saying, we are not sure whether December 25th is the day when Jesus was born. You see, you see, you see. And they have all sorts of excuses when Christmas comes in light. And maybe you have some of your own. Having seen how people in the Christmas story as told by Luke respond to the Christmas story. How are you going to respond as you? As a person? As a member of New City Community Church? What is your response to Christmas? Will you submit like Mary? Will you obey like Joseph? Will you go out and tell everybody like the shepherds did? Will you burst in praise and song like the angels did? How will you respond? The Christmas story is one that cannot be ignored. It is a wonder that you cannot encounter and then continue living business as usual. No. It demands a verdict. It demands a response. And whether you like it or not, you are going to respond. Either you will walk away indifferently and continue life as usual, or you will resist it defiantly and seek to explain it away. Or like these many characters, you will wonder, you will worship, you will witness, you will bow your knee to the one and only, the king. 
I should remind you as I close that when the Apostle Paul talks about how God became man in Philippians chapter 2, he does not only tell us about his humiliation in becoming a man, but he also tells us about his eventual exaltation after his resurrection. He wants us to remember that Jesus has not only broken into the world to help here and give food to the hungry, medicine for the sick here and there, but he crowns it up reminding us that this Jesus who humbled himself even to death on a cast cross, God has exalted him. God has given him a name above all other names. At the mention of this name, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and God will receive the glory, to the glory of God the Father. Every knee, every tongue, either they will bow in rejecting the one they have known or they will bow in accepting the one they have known. But whether they like it or not, every one of us will acknowledge his Lordship. And what a better time to acknowledge him than at Christmas. Why wait for the judgment day to acknowledge his lordship on your way to hell? Why not do it now when he is the savior? Why not do it now when you can still praise and worship him for who he is? This baby in a manger, this baby in poverty, this baby who is the rejects of society is no longer that baby from Bethlehem. He is the resurrected king that sits on heaven's throne. Peter speaking in Acts chapter 2 when they asked him what they would do about the message they had heard. Peter said repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. This Jesus whom you rejected, this Jesus whom you put to the cross with the help of the wicked men like Pilate, God has made him both Lord and God. Whether you like it or not, the baby of Bethlehem is the reigning king. He's the judge of all the nations. And if there is anything Christmas tells us, Christmas says take a look at Bethlehem's babe. Take a look at Calvary's cross where he went. And take a look on the throne where he sits today. You look back, you look up, you look forward. And what you see is that the baby of Bethlehem is the reigning king today. And he demands everyone's allegiance and response. Will you respond Will you respond well? Will you respond like the characters we find in Luke's story? Or will you wait to respond on judgment day when you are forced to acknowledge his lordship on your way to eternal destruction? Precious Lord, we are so amazed and overwhelmed at this wonderful news that we have had today. The story of Christmas that is a wonder that is beyond human imagination and understanding. Yet one that comes in simplicity, that comes to everybody regardless of who they are. One whose central message is good news. That the Savior has been born and nothing will ever be the same again. Darkness will be dispelled by light. Hopelessness will be replaced by hope. God's peace will come upon all men on whom God's favor rests. And clearly the message of Christmas is, Jesus has come and nothing will ever be the same. As we stand amazed at this wonder of wonders, looking at the responses of the so many characters in this Christmas story, we ask ourselves, what is our response? 
How then should we live in light of what you have done in the coming of Christ? Many of us may be confused about the responses right now, yet each one of us must make one and hopefully before it is too late. How I pray that you would divinely intervene. Touch our hearts and force us to face this reality of the decision that each one of us must make that we may bow our knee to you, worship you, and go out to become witnesses for the rest of our lives. I pray for those who may be among us who have not yet known you as their personal Savior and Lord, that just as you broke heaven's silence and came down among men, you would break into their hearts and reign as king, that they would bow their knee to you and do so before it is too late for them. I pray that you will reveal yourself to them, that the grace that brings forgiveness will be theirs in Christ Jesus, that they will know the joy of your salvation never to be the same again. I pray for us who have known you as our personal Savior and Lord, that in times of crisis and suffering like this lockdown, we may not lose heart. We may remember that Christmas is good news. It is joy to those who are lonely and sad. It is riches to those who are poor and rejected. And above all, it is eternal life for all those who have trusted in you. May you confirm us in that biblical truth, that in the story of the birth of Jesus, we may find our own story. That we may not only see his coming, but we may see the transformation it brings in our lives. That as a son who gave up his rights, we who didn't have any right have become sons and daughters of God. Living in that wonderful truth, may we not only be affirmed in our faith, but may we express and proclaim this faith that many who have not known you might know you and celebrate you. We pray these things through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. To learn more about the Africa Center for Apologetics Research, visit us at africanapologetics.org.